this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Goodman, the Hop Nerd, bringing you another episode of the Hop Nerd podcast. How are you doing today? I hope things are going absolutely wonderful for you wherever you find yourself in this big, wacky, wild, and let's just say wonderful today. How about that? This wonderful world. I hope things are treating you well. I hope things are going super duper awesome for you. Things are great on this end. Just living life, working a bunch. I've been writing a bunch before, doing my social media fast thing, as you know. I've been just doing me stuff, and it's been super good. Been spending some time focusing on you know, just getting a little healthier, getting a little more sleep, doing just some of those things, man. And I'm just feeling great. Before we jump into today's episode, do me a favor, head over to the website, www.thehopner.com. Follow along on all things social media. If you want to hit me up, hit me up, sam at thehopner.com or thehopnerd at gmail.com. Let's talk a little bit about the books since these episodes now we're, we're doing an audiobook on the podcast, which I don't know. I think it's kind of super duper cool. I've heard from some of you and it seems like you guys think it's super duper cool. But if you want to check out Safety Sucks, the manifesto, you can head over to www.safetysucks.net. That will link you over to so safetysucks.net that will link you to the U.S. marketplace for that book. You can go find it on Amazon. You can just search Safety Sucks. All that stuff will come up. You can kind of search me. There's a couple other Sam Goodman authors on Amazon, but you, you can search me. You can find most of my stuff that way over on the author page. So there's Safety Sucks, the bullshit in the safety profession they don't tell you about. Uh, check that one out. Most of you have. Uh, that one's been around for a minute. Safety Sucks, the manifesto, which I co-authored with a near and dear friend of mine, Ian Allison. And if you've not tuned into his podcast, you know, I'm going to tell you, go check out Native Film Talk. He's like killing it over there. Like he's getting like people like actual like Hollywood folks like coming and hanging on this podcast. I think it's super duper neat. So make sure you check that out. And then obviously what we're reading today or continuing to read, if you haven't listened to the last episode, part one of WTFRM, you should go listen to that. That gives you the first two introductory chapters of this audiobook. But if you want to check that out, if you like the book, if you're enjoying this audiobook and you had the ability to do so, if you feel like it, if you want it, if you want to show us some love, show us some support, go search it out on Amazon. I'll put a link down to it below in the show notes for this and go check it out. Go pick up WTF RM over on Amazon. It's my latest book and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to jump right in, continue this totally super duper free and complete. This is the complete reading of the book. So here we go. If again, Again, I got to say, if you haven't listened to the first two chapters in the last episode, WTFRM Part 1, go do that first. But here we go. We're continuing on. A plea for change. Persist, pivot, or concede. It's up to us. Air choice. Every time. Matthew McConaughey. It's a tale as old as time. It's a tale that is at least as old as our focus on the safety at work. Something bad and unexpected happens at work, and we jump to fix the problem. Something broke, something got busted, something blew up, someone got hurt, a piece of equipment tripped, there was smoke, there was fire, there was carnage, it was bad. And just like that, our quiet, 
peaceful and near serene workday was abruptly and almost violently interrupted by the familiar sound of shit hitting the fan. Akin to the ripping off of a band-aid, we have been swiftly presented with a brand new source of pain. As with any source of pain or discomfort, our minds immediately kick into overdrive, rapidly seeking out ways to eliminate that source of what ails us. We want to fix, and we want it now. We quickly hop to it, office chairs still spinning behind us, running off to fix the problem. Now, there's nothing wrong with the desire to fix. There is nothing inherently evil or despicable about wanting to remedy a newly discovered source of pain. But our approach to fixing things tells an entirely different tale. In fact, it often tells a story of making things much, much worse. To paint a clearer portrait, allow me to share with you a story, one that highlights our common approach to fixing most safety things. A group of carpenters, a trade I was firmly advised years ago prefers to be called scaffologists, had erected a large scaffold to support some overhead weld repairs. The intricate structure comprised of steel tubes, planks, and couplings went up without a hitch. This scaffold was almost beautiful. The platform seemed to extend near endlessly and effortlessly up and into the dark abyss of the overhead above. Each connector, each coupling, each tie-off in its perfect and rightful place. The squares and triangles of the system merged to reveal an intricate geometric web, an industrial work of art. At its peak, the work area was surrounded by a perfectly sized wrap of bright orange netting, along with all the other amenities one would expect to find. Top rail, mid rail, swing gate, tow board, and so on. As the scaphologists retreated after a job well done from the boss, the welders emerged. Completing the scaffold was only a portion of the battle. There was still much work to be done. After the daunting task of stringing leads, running temporary power, and preparing the work area, it was time to complete the primary task at hand. A shower of sparks soon rained down from above, something that the crew was more than prepared for as they had covered nearly everything in sight in thick gray fire blanket. As the sharp sound of grinding fell silent, the darkness of the overhead was near instantly turned to daylight. Lightning was flowing from the tungsten tip of the welder, illuminating all within line sight of the source. As quickly as it had begun, it was over. The welders descended from above, quickly scurrying about to pack out all that they had arrived with and to clean the work area. As quickly as they had departed, the scaphologists were back to tear down what they had just built. Pole by pole, coupling by coupling, bolt by bolt, the crew tore apart their gargantuan structure. Each piece was carefully handed down the line from person to person, each giving the piece a slight twist to indicate to the person above that they had a tight grip, silently communicating that it was good to let go. The steady stream of scaffolding parts flowed in perfect harmony from scaffold to cart until there was nothing left. It was as if it never existed at all. What was once a towering giant of steel now fit neatly onto a few rolling carts. Work is an amazing thing. It is incredibly beautiful and closer to art than we care to admit. As much as I enjoy sharing with you the beauty of our industrial work worlds, something that leaves me in constant awe, this story takes a much darker turn into how we fix work. A short while after wrapping up and returning to the shop, one of the scaffold builders noticed some slight irritation to their eye. After a few minutes of rubbing and digging at the annoyance, the employee washed out their eye under the shop sink for a few minutes. Nothing. The eye was no better or worse. Now, coming to the realization that something was most certainly in there, and more importantly, that it needed to come out, the employee informed their supervisor. After a quick inspection of the now red and puffy eye and a few bottles of eye wash, the supervisor made a couple calls and took the employee to a clinic. With the help of some magnification, the doctor discovered the culprit, a small piece of what appeared to be metal debris. A near microscopic miscreant, but a formidable foe indeed. Several eye drops and one cotton swab later, the employee had been freed from their affliction. 
We now find ourselves at a decision point in our story. But this is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. I have not included the ability to choose A, B, or C to determine the outcome of the plot. So I'll simply ask, how would you respond? Really think this one through. Take a few minutes. Pace around the room. Ask yourself, how would I respond? How would your organization respond to such an event? As a leader, as a safety practitioner, what path would you choose? Now, with some ideas flooding to mind, let's further set the stage. Let's generally label this decision point, this interaction, this intersection of company and employee as having a high level of potential meaning. For the sake of this conversation, let's reduce this down to a positive or a negative experience. I'll dare to be even more reductionist here. Let's assume for a moment that our decisions in this moment and beyond will either unleash a positive or negative chain of events. We will create something meaningful or meaningless. We will create more good than harm or more harm than good. How we react, how we respond, the path that we choose, they will move us towards better or worse. In these situations, as we maneuver and feel our way through these decision points, we alter the work world surrounding us. A poor reaction to an employee reporting an event clearly signals to the workforce that it's not safe to do so. A botched response, one that makes things worse and leaves employees wishing that they had just kept their mouths shut, will create silence, along with making work harder. The decisions that we make, they will create silence or conversation. They will cultivate ignorance or learning. They will help to increase labor action or effortless action. They will propagate order or chaos. They will help to make things better or they will serve to make things worse. So what happened to our scaffold builder? Thanks to the help of a doctor along with a bottle of prescription eye drops, the eye was as good as new within a few days. But pain comes in many forms, varieties that extend well beyond the physical realm. It not only manifests in localized physical suffering for an individual after an injury, but as feelings such as shame or guilt. It can manifest in the form of blame and punishment, pain-inducing negatives that are often used to correct undesirable behaviors in response to unpleasant operational outcomes. Mechanisms that extract pounds of flesh from wrongdoers and deepen their already present feelings of guilt and shame. It can stem from meaningless or negative change, the reshaping of our work worlds for the worse due to unintended operational surprises. These pain-inducing negatives ultimately cause harm for employees and employers alike, though the organization rarely sees or feels this harm before it's far too late. Employees feel this pain directly and in the acute sense through the purposeful and direct application of suffering, one that typically comes in the form of disciplinary action. Additionally, they often experience this acute pain through more indirect means, such as retraining, being forced to publicly share their cautionary tale, one that says, don't be like me, and seeing their story told on repeat at nearly every safety-related gathering until some other unfortunate soul takes their place. But this pain is rarely contained to acute forms of misery. It typically extends well beyond the directly involved individual. Hurt often travels far and wide. It usually travels a great distance from its source, negatively affecting many along the way. Our typical negative response to failure, reactions that grow from a deeply ingrained belief that says failure shall never occur, one that diminishes people's ability to be honest and drive organizations away from learning, that is a pain source. That slick new observation program, the one that mandates everyone must complete some arbitrary number of observations daily or else, that new program that comes with a hefty administrative burden all in the name of tracking and measuring employee behavior, you guessed it pain. That new glove, the one that you just spent millions on, the one that makes accomplishing work near impossible, that is pain. That brand new checklist or permit, the one that now must be done always and until the end of time, the one that makes work harder and more complicated, it is simply a brand new source of pain. 
What's the point? Pain is pain, no matter how we slice it, and the introduction of pain into our systems never seems to end very well for anyone involved, even if it's in the name of safety. So what really happened to our scaphologist friend? All of the above. Ultimately, hurt was met with more hurt. Pain was met with pain. Pain reared its ugly head in its many forms, and it won. I'll spare you the mundane details of the horrific analysis of the event. I'll simply say that it was par for the course. Our time is better spent talking about the chosen path forward. Let's talk about how they fixed this situation. Almost immediately, the involved employee, along with the entire crew, were placed on unpaid leave. After a brief investigation, it was determined that a lack of hazard awareness led to a level of personal protective equipment that was insufficient for the hazard. And boom, just like that, the event was born. After a quick determination that human error was the real culprit here, a steady stream of useless and harm-producing actions were generated to remedy this pesky element of error. To begin, the injured employee was fired for failing to don an appropriate level of personal protective equipment prior to starting work. The remainder of the crew received a week off without pay for failing to stop and correct a safety issue. The welding crew that had performed the work were also blamed. They were firmly scolded by leadership, and they were forced to present at safety meetings about the importance of leaving your work area cleaner than how you found it. In an effort to top these already horrific actions, the company immediately launched a care more about yourself and your coworkers campaign. Through stand down after stand down, company leaders and safety practitioners pleaded with the workforce to care more about not getting hurt, to care more about their coworkers' safety, to be more situationally aware, and that through this increased care and awareness, failure would become a thing of the past. Frontline leaders were blamed and shamed for not oversighting hard enough. New observation quotas were established, and they even created a focused observation card for eye injury prevention. A remember to clean your scaffold checkbox was added to every scrap of required pre-job paperwork in sight. A scaffold cleanliness section was added to the scaffold tags, and all of the above was near endlessly audited by the organization. A zero-tolerance policy was also implemented, one that basically stated, I'd rather see you fired, broken, homeless than even barely hurt. So, if a wrongdoer was discovered during the course of, the, of this endless auditing, this, this heap of administratium, they were quickly blamed, shamed, fired, and replaced by someone who might care more. Before we continue our exploration into these fixes, let's pause here for a moment to ponder a question. Have they accomplished anything? Better yet, was this response meaningful? Or meaningless. Let's keep going. In fact, let's go farther. Did we make it easier or harder to create safety? Did we make work easier or harder? Did we make work suck more or less? I feel the need to call out the fact that each action we have discussed thus far, other than the direct disciplinary action mentioned, impacted the total workforce. Due to a minor injury, a recoverable injury, the entire workforce has been subjected to being fixed. Allow me to state the obvious here. Nothing has been fixed. Nothing meaningful has been done. It looks more like a solution in search of a problem. Safety theater at best. In fact, I'm not so sure that there was ever anything here that required fixing to begin with. Sacrilege, I know. The brutal fact is things have actually been made much, much worse. To highlight what these so-called fixes have actually accomplished so far, let's recap. An employee, a seasoned and skilled carpenter with numerous years of experience with the company, had an issue at work. In this case, it was an injury to their eye. They took on the interpersonal risk to say something. They were trusting enough, enough of the organization to report the problem. In response, the organization swiftly acted by publicly crucifying the employee, tar and feathering the crew, flogging the group that had last used the scaffold, and by making life just that much harder overall for the entire workforce. These actions did not just create more meaningless clutter and general hardship. They created something far worse. They created silence 
fear, and frustration. They made life harder. They made work harder. They created disdain for the organization. They reinforced this idea of a parent-child relationship between employee and employer. They moved them away from learning and farther away from betterment. Who, in their right mind, would report something in such an environment? I most certainly wouldn't. And if you say that you would, you're lying. But wait, there's more. Adding to this already stinking pile of garbage, the company added more personal protective equipment, PPE. In addition to the standard requirement of hard hat, safety glasses, and gloves, scaffold builders were now forced through yet another brand new zero tolerance rule to, to wear either a face shield or a new contraption that was lovingly referred to as the hockey mask. This now mandated thingamajig being a face shield with integrated goggles resembling a paintball mask or, you guessed it, a hockey mask. Not much choice, huh? Personally, I'd choose the Jason Voorhees look over the floppy face shield attached to my hard hat too. But when forced to choose the lesser of two evils, one must still choose evil. When presented with a choice between bad or worse, bad might be the obvious winner, but it's still choosing bad. There can be no winners in this organizationally induced conundrum. So now, while scaling heights and structures that many would never dare, while performing their high-height tightrope balancing act of part-passing, hammering, and tightening, while trying to avoid a deadly fall to the ground below, while trying to get work done, they must now do it all virtually blind. This truly meets the definition of cutting off your nose to spite your face. In essence, all that has been accomplished is an increase in the likelihood of a high-outcome event, all in the name of preventing extremely low-outcome events. So work has been made harder, efficiency has been destroyed, the risk of dropping a scaffold pole and impaling someone below, along with the risk of a scaffold builder falling to their death, has all increased dramatically. To distill this back down to the heart of our conversation, all that has been created is chronic harm and suffering for those trying their best to accomplish work in an already complex, complicated, and dangerous world, and the potential for extremely high outcome acute harm and suffering. All that this fixing of work has accomplished is an increase of pain and suffering for those that actually do work. The creation and introduction of meaningless and needless pain into our work world is ethically and morally wrong, period. Even if it's in the name of safety, even if it feels really great, even if we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we can better our workforces through this application of pain and suffering, it is disgraceful and it is shameful. The creation and introduction of pain and suffering into our work worlds goes against all that safety should be and all that safety should stand for. But our employees have missed the mark. They messed up and they must pay. Proponents of this policy-driven suffering will shriek. These true believers, and I use that term quite purposefully, equate error, deviation, adaptation, rule-bending, breaking, and anything that differs from the intended outcome of the ultimate and supreme will of the organization as comparable to sin. They have convinced themselves that an eye for an eye is not only just and good, but necessary. Safety is propped up as some new religion on its best days and more like a Kool-Aid sipping cult on its worst. These sins against the organization are viewed in the same light as sins against any other form of religious doctrine, as immoral acts that are transgressions against divine law. And they believe just that. That the organization, along with its rules, policies, procedures, systems, and leaders, have been near divinely inspired, that they are near spiritual, infallible, and sacred. All that is needed is enough faith, devotion, focus, compliance, and worship on the part of the employee, and all will be well. In the event that things do go wrong, or something does happen, it clearly indicates a lack of these things on the part of the faithful, or worse, non-belief altogether. 
Is it any wonder that organizations seek to pour down fire and brimstone upon those that dare slip in their divinity with these beliefs built into the soul of their organizations? Sin is often defined as missing the mark, whether knowingly or unknowingly, with or without good reason, on purpose or not so much. Sin is a pretty clear-cut term. You have committed to sin or you have not. There isn't much of a gray area afforded when sin is often approached as a yes or no question. When examining for sin, context and nuance are purposely stripped from the equation. The reasoning behind the transgression makes no difference. Sin is sin, and sin is always bad. Starting to sound a bit familiar. As organizations, this aligns well with their beliefs. It's linear, clean, and feels just and good. The notion of organizational sin fits well within their current views. In their pseudo-religious approaches to safety, there is sin and sinner, holy or unholy. There is right and wrong. There is virtuous and sinful. There is black and white. There is hitting the mark and there is missing the mark. There is crime, punishment, pain, sticks, and carrots, and there is not an in-between. To pull this out of the realm of the religious for a moment, at the very least, we like to approach the sin within our companies as if it were some faux criminal justice system or court, investigating crimes and delving out punishments. Rather than organizational sins, we view these misdeeds as organizational crimes, seeking out offenses and offenders in hopes of bringing wrongdoers to swift justice. We have policy procedures and rule books, intra-organizational laws, that we constantly comp compare our employees' actions or inactions against to determine right from wrong, just from unjust. We patrol and police our work worlds, rulebook in one hand and disciplinary action form in the other, ever ready to, to haul a wrongdoer down to central booking for interrogation and arraignment. We are on constant watch trying to catch lawbreakers, seeking to fix them through the application of punishment or banish them if they are believed to be too uncaring or if their violation is too severe. Again, on the surface, it feels so simple, clean, clear, and just, but is it? Who the hell are we? No, really, who the hell are we? Who are we as organizations, professionals, and leaders to construct and implement these so-called virtuous justice systems, some of which we assume to be divinely inspired within our work worlds? Should justice, in the sense of justice being crime and punishment or the stoning of sinners, be a function of an organization? Is that really a role as companies that create bits, bits bobs, and widgets, and thingamajigs? Really. We can't figure out our budgets, but we're going to solve complex justice systems. We can't figure out how to fill the fucking holes in their parking lots. But we're going to cast sin out of our organizations once and for all? <laughs> yeah, right. To take this a bit farther, do we really believe that it is the role of an organization to control all? Can a company control everything? Should a company seek to control everything? How much can we really control, influence, impact, or change? To insert a better question, how much of this control actually matters? I know, I know, endless questions, but that's sort of the point. We need to ask ourselves and our organizations these not-so-easy questions. As with many of the subtopics we pursue around the grander topic of doing safety better, the answers are not always clear. For me, this often indicates that a specific and nuanced approach, one that best fits your particular work world, is probably the most correct answer. But if you humor my opinions... I will share them with you. Speaking in overly broad terms, I think that we as people like to think that we really know what's best for other people. We like to believe this even in areas in which we have no knowledge, expertise, understanding, or know-how. We believe firmly in the moral superiority and virtuous nature of our personal brands of truth, also known as our feelings, we mistake this ego-driven feeling of righteousness for meaning, higher purpose, or calling that we then interpret as positive feedback that tells us, you're right, self. I do know best. Yes, self. You are correct. 
On top of that belief, one that says, I know best, we really, really like to tell people what to do. Again, even if we haven't a clue about what we're actually telling people to do, telling people what to do feels really great. We not only like this, but we feel that it is our right to do so. You don't have to look far to find examples of this. These insidious thoughts have permeated the worlds that surround us. If you browse social media for more than a few minutes, you are sure to find someone demanding that someone else conform to their beliefs or ideas simply because they personally feel that their ideas are morally superior to those of their online foe. These interactions run the gamut, gamut of topics, with most of the social discord beginning with some form of, how dare you think differently? From parenting to politics, religion to diets, and yes, even the safety of work, free thought, opinion, nuance, individuality, and reason is not permitted in our new age of sheepish societal compliance. Compliance in the workplace isn't that much different at all. All the basics still apply, and maybe even more so. We still love to feel morally superior. We still love to tell people what to do. And ultimately, we like to be right while someone else is wrong. But at work, all of these basics are coupled with increased authority and power, both hierarchically through position and title and implicitly through the pursuit of shared noble goals such as safety. In our work worlds, many job descriptions quite literally involve the telling of others what to do, which isn't a bad thing. Our hierarchies and our systems of organization, while always flawed, are not the enemy in this battle. Our systems, structures, and hierarchies have come from somewhere. They were built upon years of generational knowledge. They may be flawed, but they're not valueless. The true enemy is the deeply rooted assumptions that lead to the misuse and abuse use of our systems and structures, assumptions that lead to our systems and structures being used as, used as inflictors of pain and suffering, as determiners of saint and sinner, and as simplifiers of our complex work worlds to black and white. So, do not let me fool you into thinking that you should view our worlds, work or otherwise, in the reduced terms of good v. bad, right v. wrong, righteous v. wicked. Some of the point here is that nothing is black and white, even if just for the continued sake of this conversation, we reduce our discussion down to the terms of good and evil. We must accept the near infinite complexity of these often intertwined positions with a basic understanding that good and evil are not always opposing, that they're often woven together and intertwined, that everything is a combination of good and bad, that nothing is completely right or wrong, and that our personal or organizational feelings or truths about these things make no impact on this fact. Where does that leave our black and white approaches to worker safety, to organizational justice, to overall leadership? It should leave us asking better, sometimes tougher, questions about our assumptions and the approaches and systems that have grown from them. We have already started this inquiry at varying points in the preceding text. I'm nearly certain that you're already starting to ask yourself some of these questions, along with many more. Should an organization seek to control and influence all? If not, what should we seek to touch? And how much control do we need? At what point does our ever-growing desire for organizational control turn into organizational totalitarianism? Better yet, how much of that control actually matters or accomplishes anything? What is the right balance between organizational control and employee autonomy? What is the balance that works best for our particular work world? What best serves the needs of our organization and the employees that accomplish work? What is the right mixture of anarchy and order? Are we creating more good than harm or more harm than good with our approaches to the safety of work, discipline, and control? What is actually important? What matters? What is meaningful? And on and on. 
The point isn't in the examples that I've just provided. The point lives within the process of questioning itself. For far too long, we have simply accepted certain things as necessary evils no organization is complete without. These seemingly untouchable bits of organizational structure like disciplinary action or punishment, death grip control over employees' every moves, sticks and carrots, and the accompanying pain, suffering, and harm that they bring about, they should be questioned. We must mature our thinking to the point in which everything is on the table. Nothing is perceived to be so sacred that it can elude thoughtful examination and scrutiny. We are well beyond the point in which we should be questioning nearly everything. Let's resurrect and reiterate a point that's already been made earlier in this book. Communication is one of the most powerful tools that we have within our arsenal. Communication, and questioning in particular, is a manner in which we seek understanding. Understanding gained through open and honest communication, through listening and questioning, is curative. Nothing should be off limits. Everything should be on the table. Nothing can be so sacred or scary that it cannot be openly discussed, debated, or challenged. If we hope to move beyond our current practices of safety and sanity, if we hope to create something other than safety mediocrity, we must be open and we must be willing to have hard conversations about what is actually important and what is not. I'll leave you with this. Without questioning, without asking why or what the fuck from time to time, Without listening for, examining for, and pursuing what is actually meaningful, what matters, what counts, what helps, what truly makes things better, we're only aspiring to safety mediocrity. And mediocrity, my friends, mediocrity is the greatest sin. Well, there you have it. That was chapter three. So again, you got the first two kind of introductory chapters in the last podcast. That's part one. This is part two, which is chapter three. Well, that sounds super confusing once I say that out there. So there's chapter three, right? That was chapter three, a plea for change. Next week, we'll have another chapter, and that chapter is called Seek Competency Over control. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this chapter and the, 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 well, I guess the last three now. So make sure you, you know, you hit me up with an email, Sam at the hopner.com, the hopner, gmail.com, slide on the DMs, all that kind of sort of stuff. Again, if you're enjoying this totally super duper free audiobook version of WTFRM, do me a favor, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the paperback, show us some love, show us some support. It really, really, really helps us a ton to kind of keep the lights on around here and to keep, you know, making books and keep bringing you content that uh, hopefully you find value. So that's the only thing I would throw out there is, again, if you find value in this free version of the book, do me a favor, head over, pick up a copy of the paperback on Amazon and, you know, throw all those books in there. Safety sucks the manifesto. Safety sucks the bullshit in the safety profession they don't tell you about. You can throw in WTFRM. You can go throw in, I've written a couple other things too. You can, you can do obscured if you want to pick that one up. If that's kind of your jam or my, my fiction book over there in his name, you can go pick that up all available on Amazon. Again, I love you. I mean it. I appreciate all the support. Hope you're enjoying this audiobook version of WTFRM. That's all I got. Sam Goodman, The Hot Nerd, signing off. <gasps> bye, everybody. Bye.